The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I you turn in your Bible with me to Exodus 20, as we take up the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and as we look at this important text, I was thinking about how many Christians in our age question whether the law has any relevance in the Christian life. Uh, some people claim there's, that this is Old Testament, and we're a New Testament Christians, and the law is uh, uh, not to be uh, part of, of the practical Christian living. Uh, others of us may question, well, you know, are the Ten Commandments rules to live by, or, or what exactly are they? How do they relate to the gospel and the Christian life? But I, I believe as we look at them in their context, as we understand why, why and when God gave His people the law, we understand uh, how, how the law relates to our redemption, our relationship to God, and, and why they do have uh, uh, very significant relevance for our lives until we reach glory. So please follow as I read Exodus 20, verses 1 through 21. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain." For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder, and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And he stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin.'" 
the people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is God's Word. Father God, I would ask that the words of my mouth, that the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our gracious Redeemer. Amen. I was struck six weeks ago when I was visiting China for the second time in a calendar year. I, I was struck by the, the, the recognition uh, of how the differences between our culture and theirs uh, root in a different understanding of the rule of law. Uh, that, that China, lacking a Judeo-Christian background, uh, lacking some of the things we benefit from in the West, really does not have a strong sense of rule of law. Uh, that's rooted in a lawgiver, that's rooted in a standard of law that is, is above human powers and authorities. And the consequence is that law in that culture tends to be more arbitrary, uh, tends to be less consistently applied. It results in uh, a people who don't always take their authorities very seriously uh, and, and will only do things if they're coerced, only, only follow and keep uh, a law uh, if there's going to be significant consequences. And in fact, as I learned from uh, our brothers and sisters in the churches there, uh, many of the laws are just ignored. Uh, sometimes the law is not any clear, it's not very clear, and it's in a culture where it, that lacks checks and balances that we uh, enjoy uh, more so here in the West and in uh, the United States of America. But one peculiar thing I noticed as we were driving around a large city, how everybody obeys the, the uh, traffic laws because there's cameras everywhere. It, it, it's, a, it's, it's not based upon good faith. It's based upon coercion. And because with technology, the government's able to enforce the keeping of the law and to find those who break it, the people obey it. And as I understand it, in, in a year or so, uh, the government there will have facial recognition technology to track everybody, uh, well over a billion people across the country. So it's in a, in a totalitarian mindset, uh, it is based upon coercion uh, more so than uh, the rule of law. Here in the West, it forced me to think about, as we, as we think about the Ten Commandments, how we in the West benefit from a strong sense of rule of law and some of the historic documents that come out of a Judeo-Christian understanding of the law. Uh, Samuel uh, Rutherford's Lex Rex, which, which stands for the law's king, is a, is a pivotal uh, document in our, in our heritage that establishes the fact that, that, that the king is not above the law. R- human rulers and authorities are not above the law. Law comes from the lawgiver. And everything from the Magna Carta down to the U.S. Constitution are, are the fruit that is reaped from this Judeo-Christian understanding uh, of foundational law that has blessed and enriched our Western culture. So we, we, we take this from the Ten Commandments, this idea of accountability, of checks and balances. And though law can be changed and corrected, in conform, but only in conformity with better principles in alignment with the will of a benevolent and sovereign creator. At least that's the intent, and at least that's the hope uh, in countries and cultures that are influenced by uh, biblical Christianity. But as we approach this text and try to understand the Ten Commandments, I would contend that the law is best understood in relationship to redemption. That law 
in the, in the biblical sense, is love-driven. That the biblical law is centered on relationship and, and the, the development and hope of the flourishing of God's people. And that's in contrast to a very worldly view of the law that is fear-driven, based on coercion, that, that is centered on control and tends to become very legalistic. And, and to preface this, we uh, also want to establish a biblical understanding of law that, of course, law does not merit salvation. Law establishes the terms of relationship for what is expected of the redeemed. And I open here in, in chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, as we, we, we recognize there's a preamble to the Ten Commandments. Before we even get to the first commandment, God sets the context, a, a reminder to His people uh, of who they are and who He is. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Notice that redemption precedes law. The law was given to God's people after God had already secured their redemption. God entered into relationship with His people by His saving power and saving grace, and then gives them law to follow and govern their worship and their lives and their relationship to Him. And we see this pattern throughout Scripture that that law follows redemption that the imperatives of Scripture follow the indicatives. We see this beautifully in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. The first half of this book are all the indicatives of, of this is who you are in Christ. This is what God has done for you. This is what Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has done to secure and seal your redemption for three whole beautiful doxological chapters. And then the second half of this important letter, we find all the practical implications. All, all the imperatives, all the commands of, because this is who you are, this is who you should be. It is dangerous in the Christian life when we get these things backwards. When we begin to see law and obedience and commands as something that, uh, that precedes or, or comes before relationship with God. I think an apt illustration is just the way children relate to parents. I think of my, my children... Uh, do not obey me to become my children. Okay, there, there's no probationary period. Okay, they're, they're born into my household. They are my children by right and by birth. And, but they obey me, at least I teach them to obey me, because they are, are my children. They don't earn it. Uh, they don't merit it. It's, it's, and it's not even something that they have to work to, to preserve and maintain. And yet I give them expectations, rewards, and punishments, hopefully, uh, as any good parent should. You know, as it applies to parenting, and and as we understand it from a biblical understanding of redemption, rules do not have the power to deliver us from our lost condition. The law itself cannot redeem us. The law does not save us. The law does not rescue us from our fallen lost condition. Only the saving power of God, only His gracious redemption saves us for Himself. And then the law is given to guide us, to instruct us how to live in a fallen world, how to flee temptation, how to conform our minds and wills according to God's holy will that we might flourish and please Him and be a blessing to others. So I think it's it's this context we need to first understand the law, that the law comes from a loving God who desires relationship with us, who desires that we flourish, 
who, who wants us to become everything that he wills us to become in the likeness of Christ, but living within the boundaries and guidelines of his will, recognizing uh, the weakness of our fallen condition. Now, some can make an idol of the law. Some people can even almost worship law uh, more than God himself. I believe in some sense this was the Pharisees' problem, uh, that when Jesus was uh, critiquing religious rulers of his day who, who were elevating law beyond its place and were failing to understand that the relational nature uh, of how law keeps us and uh, helps preserve covenant uh, with a holy, loving, and gracious God. God, And the law helps us to repent and grow in our faith. We'll, we'll come back to that later on uh, in this message. Uh, this past week, I had the privilege of being on a panel uh, for a high school student who, who was delivering a paper, um, uh, like, a, like a semester you know, thesis paper, uh, on transgenderism. Uh, a very ambitious topic for, for a junior in high school. And, and I was so pleased, I, I was so impressed with the way she handled the topic as she's addressing gender dysphoria and disordered desires and, and, and delineating between someone's broken, fallen condition and, and sin. D- d- to be suffering unwanted desires is not, necess- it's not sinful in itself, although it's a result of, of one's brokenness. But how you respond, how you act upon it, uh, how, the choices you make in your life and your lifestyle uh, can either be in a matter of obedience or, or a matter of rebellion against God and our Creator. And um, she did a wonderful job of just help, helping to understand uh, that this movement that's become so popular in our society it, it is an act of rebellion against the design of the Creator. And I really appreciated that. I think that that's the right argument as we, as we address so, many of the, so much of the lawlessness in our society. Rather than confronting people with law and, and, and legal terms, I, I find it oftentimes very helpful to address what is God's design? What is God's will? And going to Scripture and even using, using some uh, from the scientific world to help establish what is God's design for human flourishing? And when we deviate from that, when we violate that, it results in destructive consequences. So, obviously, we live in a world of confusion, of people suffering, and we as God's people need to have a healthy understanding of the law. Use it not as a club, not to beat ourselves up, not to be legalistic, not to guilt trip, but to help people understand that there's a loving God who has entered into a redemptive relationship with a people, who, who has given us his will and his design for our lives uh, that we might flourish and uh, be a blessing. So let's consider the Ten Commandments. Uh, this is a subject that could take a whole sermon series or a whole Sunday school series, but we're going to tackle it uh, at a high level uh, in one message, considering just breaking down the, the two tables of the law, the, 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 what we call kind of the vertical table of the law, the, the first four commandments, uh, the, the very Godward-centered aspect of the Ten Commandments, and then the latter six commandments that are more on the horizontal plane, uh, both of which are summarized uh, in the two greatest commandments that Jesus gives uh, in the Gospels. But of course, the first one, you shall have no other gods before me. It is clear in the law that God 
requires allegiance, loyalty, that it's an exclusive relationship, just as we see in a marital covenant there, you know, that any other, a lack of tolerance for any rivals. The Lord of God is a jealous God who desires in our worship, our exclusive loyalty to himself. And we see this played out throughout Israel's history with a severe punishment for false prophets and how uh, Israel had, had, had uh, uh, means and provisions to uh, eliminate false prophets and false teachers from among their ranks. And how might we apply this in our own day? I believe that it, it applies largely to uh, making sure we don't have false worship in our lives, making sh- trying to identify and repent of our own idolatries, but also ha- how it applies to false teaching, false teaching that can run rampant uh, even within our evangelical world. Uh, but we believe in this gospel age, we are called to have compassion upon those who are followers of other religions, of other gods. And uh, the, the biblical manner is to uh, seek to win people over uh, with conversion rather than coercion. We want to prevail upon people the superiority of biblical faith and the truth of of the gospel over and above uh, the false teachings of other religions. Some people respond to this, this God who, who requires such exclusive uh, loyalty and allegiance. You know, is God an egomaniac? I mean, is God just consumed with himself? Well, in response to that, uh, we have to observe that, that God, who, who is the highest good, uh, who is the creator of all that there is, who is, who is first in wisdom and holiness and righteousness, uh, that the God, is, God is the only one, only one worthy of our allegiance, our obedience, and our worship. And as we, as we profess in our, uh, in our catechism, in our confessions, that we seek to glorify God and find our enjoyment in Him and Him alone. But, but this exclusive language is not unique to the Old Testament. It's not unique to the God of the Old Testament. Uh, we find this in the Lord Jesus Christ in his own wording from uh, John 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says some very exclusive, makes some very exclusive claims. Uh, that, 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 yes, only the egomaniacs that we've seen in the last century, the totalitarian dictators, w- would claim such power and control for themselves. But when you consider the life, character, witness of the Lord Jesus, uh, the testimony of his life and his miracles, his obedience to the Father, his consuming passion for the glory of his Father, that the, he is the only one worthy, worthy of our worship, dedication, and obedience. The second commandment, you shall not make no graven images. You, we shall not make anything in the likeness of creation. We must not use the created things to represent God in any way. Uh, this, this is uh, uh, an, an offensive um, representation of the almighty, infinite God. And uh, this, this is unpacked further later on throughout biblical revelation when it becomes very clear that the, the infinite God cannot be contained by all of creation put together. The ancient pagans would try to represent their gods with idols, and they would actually have ceremonies where the priest would, would, would induct a ceremony as though the god entered into the idol. 
and was set up for worship. The god Dagon, who the Lord, top of the Ark of the Covenant, topples uh, among the Philistines is one example. But you remember when Solomon prayed in the dedication of the temple, he says, the highest heavens cannot even t- contain the Lord. Israel did not have this idea that the Lord was contained him within the Holy of Holies, though his real presence was there. He's the God of all the earth. Likewise, Paul, when he's correcting uh, the Athenians of, of Greece, uh, that, uh, that, that God is not made with human, with human hands, uh, that, that God uh, is the creator of the heavens and the earth. So, in relation to this commandment, we need to recognize uh, another biblical theme that we become like what we worship. And so if we settle for less, if we are consumed with idols and graven images, we become like those things that we seek to worship, whether it's Israel bowing down to golden calves or worshiping the false gods of the Canaanites. God calls us to worship him, to grow and become like him the one true holy and righteous God. And the, the Scriptures offer us a beautiful beatific vision that in glory in heaven to come, we will see God and become like Him. And that is the hope and the joy of the Christian believer. And we will reject uh, the teachings of the Mormons and others that insist that we preexisted, that we become gods ourselves. That is uh, completely false. Scripture makes a clear distinction between God as creator, us the creature. He is infinite, we are finite, uh, but we worship him and him alone, the God who will suffer no rivals. Thirdly, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. As we, the second commandment has to do with the hands. Uh, the third commandment has to do uh, putting constraints upon our mouths and even our thoughts. And you, taking the Lord's name in vain can be expressed through uh, cussing, through cursing, uh, through using the Lord's name in a derogatory way. And we have whole books of the Bible that, that teach us how to tame our tongues. The book of Proverbs, uh, the book of James especially, help us to recognize the sins of our tongues, of our, our tendency to use our tongues uh, in destructive ways and dishonor the Lord directly or by uh, condemning and attacking those who are made in his holy image. Jesus says that we'll be judged by every careless word we have uttered. So the third commandment reminds us to be wise and prudent with how we handle our language and restrain our tongues, to avoid vain, judgmental, flippant, accusational, and disrespectful speech, but using our speech to build up, to edify fellow believers. Fourthly, The fourth commandment uh, calls us to observe the Sabbath. Uh, The purpose of the Sabbath on the seventh day is for worship and for rest. We have a day set aside, a peculiar day that we might gather as God's people to to worship, uh, to find our our enjoyment in God himself, to rest from our regular uh, labors. And as we work out how to to apply this in a society that is a 24-7 society, you, how do you work that out practically? Uh, as we recognize, and even Jesus recognized, uh, that, that some work, there are some what we call works of necessity, where certain professions had to work. You know, early this morning at 5 a.m., there were people out here move, removing snow and, and doing kinds of work so that we could gather for worship. 
Uh, obviously, the ministers are working on the Lord's Day uh, as we bring God's Word. Uh, so we have to understand the, the intent and purpose is that God calls us uh, to worship Him, uh, to rest in Him, uh, to prioritize these things, and, and to seek whatever, as much as we can to be consistent within uh, this principle. And I, you know, whenever I'm counseling somebody who's talking about their, their work and their vocation, uh, I urge them strongly uh, to, to, even as you take a job, a part-time job, a full-time job, to do the best you can to preserve the Lord's Day, preserve time to gather with God's people in corporate worship, or for families, busy families with busy schedules, uh, to try to avoid or uh, explicitly avoid activities, sports especially, uh, that oftentimes get scheduled uh, on Sunday during times of, of corporate worship. And uh, to be obedient and to be faithful and flourish sometimes means sacrificing some things uh, that we might like to do. Uh, but it's recognizing that, that God knows our need. He knows our, our, our need for rest. He knows our need to have our hearts recalibrated, uh, that, that we come into corporate worship uh, to kind of get our spiritual thermostats set properly that we might live well uh, in a manner pleasing to Him. So as we think about this first table of the law, the, the vertical aspects of the law, uh, and as we recognize you know, uh, Jesus' response to what's the, for what's the greatest of commandments, He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So, so in summary of these four commandments, we're called to love the Lord, to put Him first and foremost in our lives, uh, to live a life devoted to the Lord, to put Him first and foremost, even above the needs of other people, above the needs uh, even of the church, but, but a calling in terms of our spending, our giving, uh, the, the tithe of our money, the tithe of our, of our time, our regular time of worship, uh, to live in a life of faithful discipleship that, that the commandments remind us that we find our hope our identity, our satisfaction, and our purpose in God and God alone and not in the things of this world. So we shift gears to look more at the, the horizontal plane, at uh, the second half, the, the second table of the commandments uh, that, that are the more manward, looking at our responsibility and our relationship to our fellow man. And it begins uh, with the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, as Paul points out in Ephesians, that this is the first commandment with a promise, uh, that indicating that those who honor their parents uh, live long and prosper. And it's not an absolute promise, but, but it's a general guiding principle uh, that, that people, young people especially, who are taught to honor their parents, to respect them, to respect proper leadership, uh, are going to enjoy and reap the blessings of the Lord. And I w- would point out as we think about what does it mean to honor your father and mother, uh, when I do teaching with uh, young people and with parents, I point out that in Ephesians 6, Paul instructs uh, children to obey their parents in the Lord. And I ask people to kind of, well, what's the difference between obedience and honor? And people often think about it. And, you know, well, what does it mean for a child to obey his, obey his parents? Obviously, young children obey their parents. As they get older, do they still obey their parents? Well, in some sense, yes. In some sense, no. Uh, the, the goal of parenting is to enable your child to, to grow up, to mature, to establish his or her own household, uh, and there, there's less an emphasis on direct obedience. 
But the, the command of honor from the fifth commandment applies to all of life. That regardless of age, we're always called to honor our parents, to honor them with honorable, respectable living, uh, to treat them the way we want to be treated, to recognize that we bear their name, and uh, that, that their reputation uh, can be uh, further enhanced or tainted by uh, our behavior. And historically, the, uh, the, this fifth commandment has been recognized not only apply just to parents, but to apply to proper authorities that God has established on earth. And as we continue on through uh, the commandments, do not murder, uh, do not take innocent life. Uh, we heard uh, a wonderful challenge this morning from uh, Diane Zahn regarding uh, the sanctity of life. Uh, and I appreciate how the, the ESV here uh, properly translates this commandment, you shall not murder, uh, rather than the more generic, you shall not kill. Uh, murder is the, is, uh, the killing and taking of innocent life. And uh, the, the Bible would recognize and condone that there is proper killing, uh, proper law enforcement, proper self-defense against legitimate threats uh, that are not considered murder. Uh, but murder is the, the, the evil intent of taking innocent life, whether it's genocide, whether it's terrorism, uh, whether it's uh, uh, hateful killing and murdering of uh, another human being made in God's image, that ever since the days of Noah, uh, we've had provisions for uh, capital punishment. Capital punishment and just war theory are the legacies of uh, a biblical understanding of law. So, you know, and even as you unpack uh, this commandment throughout the rest of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, uh, there's even not only a prohibition, but even a a preponderance of protection of innocent life, the the command to build parapets around the roof uh, of a home. Uh, And and as we unpack that principle, uh, the need for guardrails, the need for speed limits, the need for child safety seats, uh, food and healthy safety regulations, that this commandment applies to recognizing that life is precious, uh, that we should not squander it, uh, that that we have a need to preserve and protect life uh, uh, in a manner that's pleasing to God that constitutes human flourishing. Uh, Do not commit adultery, the, the seventh commandment. Uh, directly speaking to the violation of marriage as a, as a great offense in the sight of God. And I would point out to you that, practically speaking, uh, the seventh commandment is, is the most common reason uh, why we excommunicate people in our church. Uh, it, as people take very serious vows uh, in marriage, and when they violate that vow, uh, it's the most common reason why we've had to excommunicate people and treat them as unbelievers. And as we meditate on this command, we recognize that we live in a very dangerous and and licentious culture, living in a a post-sexual revolution age uh, with online temptation, uh, with temptation uh, in the workplace, temptation uh, in uh, people's past. Uh, uh, A positive exhortation from this commandment would to to be guarded against inappropriate emotional attachments to have healthy boundaries around your relationship with the opposite sex, uh, to guard your marriage, to guard and protect uh, the hearth and home in a manner that's pleasing in the sight of God. And of course, we also have to take the uh, teachings of Jesus seriously when he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount uh, that anyone who looks lustfully at another person commits adultery 
in the heart. So we need to recognize that this, this law increasingly is exposing the weakness and the frailty of our human condition and our covetous desires. Uh, the Eighth Commandment, do not steal the taking of other people's property. Uh, the Bible speaks against kidnapping and man-stealing and uh, applies to the, to the horrific um, preponderance of human trafficking uh, in our own uh, day and age. Uh, but stealing can also apply to plagiarism, stealing people's work, uh, stealing from an employer, stealing from the government on your taxes. There's all manner of ways that we fail, can fail, with our integrity when we fail to recognize what is ours and what is another person's property. And yes, the Bible does uphold uh, the proper preserving of personal property uh, against some of the, the contrary economic systems that are um, being uh, 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 patronized and, and, and being promoted throughout uh, the world. Uh, the ninth commandment, do not bear false testimony. Uh, the, the proper context of this commandment is, is the courtroom uh, in prohibiting against uh, falsely accusing somebody in court. We can think of Ahab and Jezebel uh, who uh, falsely accused Naboth uh, of evil and wickedness. Uh, in order to steal his vineyard. And, you know, in our, in our culture, uh, our legal system has adopted some of, the, some of the intent of this commandment by when one takes sworn testimony in court, swearing to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. You know, recognizing the duplicity of the human heart, our tendency to shade the truth, to exaggerate, to diminish it, and uh, our need for integrity not just with possessions, but our integrity with the things that we say. So there's many other things that we could unpack uh, regarding false testimony. Uh, but moving on to, to coveting, when you come to the Tenth Commandment, it, it becomes even more clear uh, that, that God is concerned with the heart and not just with external uh, behavior. The, the root of acting out on our sinful desires comes with a coveting of other people's possessions, privileges, honors, talents, awards. And as fallen creatures, we are guilty of the sin of comparison, of falling into self-pity and ideas of entitlement and foolishly fantasizing about the things we wish were ours. And so, so when we come to the end of the Ten Commandments, we recognize that motives matter. We can't merely externalize the law. And Jesus, in his unpacking of the law in this Sermon on the Mount, uh, he, he makes it very clear that, that we cannot say we've kept the law by any external means, by, well, you know, I've never done any of these, uh, you know, haven't dishonored my parents, haven't murdered or committed adultery or borne false witness. And in, in some sense that those things may be true, uh, but to say one hasn't coveted uh, is going to be a lie. Um, and, uh, and, you know, as James goes on to teach, that anyone who has is, who is violated and broken one law uh, is guilty of breaking them all because it's all interconnected. It's a, it's, a, it's a system of integrity. And so how do we apply these things? How, as we think about uh, the, the first, now the second table of the law, uh, in this, that when Jesus unpacks the law and summarizes it, uh, to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, I, I would say this for starters, 
Um, sometimes I'm having an apologetic discussion with somebody who's not a Christian or from another religion, and we'll, we'll talk about the law and the rules, and oftentimes people have a very law and legalistic understanding of Christianity, but I would point out to them that in some ways the general principles of law and morality in the Bible is not all that different from other religions, uh, and there is a basic code of moral conduct that is very similar across uh, different world faiths. So in some sense, it's not so much the law that sets Christianity apart, it's the gospel. That, that we are given a law that's in context of gospel, redemption, and relationship. And so we need to preserve that as we think about the law, as we think about our witness, as we think about what it means uh, to be a loving neighbor, as Jesus commands us, as we think about uh, what, what, it, what it means to love our family, our neighbors, our coworkers. Uh, people in need in our county, uh, far and wide. Uh, Micah 6.8 provides a helpful kind of Old Testament summary of the law, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God, uh, an apt summary of the things that uh, God teaches us by His law. But of course, as we come to God's law, and we strive to be obedient to it, strive for it to become, to, to increasingly become a guide for our lives, we have to recognize uh, that, that we fall short, uh, that we are all in our sin nature lawbreakers, uh, that uh, we ultimately stand condemned before the law. And in our selfish, sinful nature, we could have a response of hatred. We could hate the law because it just condemns us. We can't fulfill it. We can't obey it perfectly. You mean, mean the law condemns, but the Spirit gives life. And that's where the gospel comes in and gives us a new perspective on the law. That we recognize that in the work of Jesus Christ, we have one sent by God who perfectly fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law, who, who obeyed them, every jot and tittle, for our redemption that Jesus is the true law keeper. He is the one who met its righteous requirements. He is the one who fulfilled it, who satisfied it. And not only did he obey the law perfectly, he also bears the punishment for our imperfect keeping of it. That, that Jesus bears the penalty for our law breaking, for our, our covenant failure. And so that in Jesus, we see law and gospel come together. In Jesus, we see the one who fulfilled the law on our behalf and the one who took our uh, punishment uh, to, as a substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. And it's in, in the light of that beautiful picture of the gospel that we can now embrace the law in a fresh way, that the law is actually useful and helpful in the Christian life. And historically, our forefathers have spoken of the three uses of the law, that the law, first and foremost, is for societal order and restraining lawlessness. Uh, but secondly, the law, as, as Paul says in Galatians 3, was put into effect to lead us to Christ. That it's the law that, that makes known to us our sin nature. The law helps us to see where we fall short, where we are broken, where we are in need of redemption. And so the law is a tutor. It's a guide and a guardian to help show us, no, your hope is in Christ, uh, the one who can redeem us and save us. We can't redeem ourselves by keeping the law. The law exposes us. It's a mirror. It shows us our weakness and frailty and points us to the hope that's only found in Jesus Christ. 
And once we find that hope in Jesus Christ, we can come back to the law in fresh relationship to recognize its place, providing helpful guidance in our Christian lives, uh, continuing to root out idolatry and disobedience, uh, to continue to help us grow in repentance. As Luther said, all of, all of the Christian life is one of repentance. And that growing in God's grace, growing in obedience uh, for God's glory, for the fame of his name and the spread of his reputation, comes as we take the law into account, as we see the law in its appropriate relationship with our gospel hope. So as we conclude, we see the law as it comes to us in Exodus 20, but want to conclude just having a brief reflection upon Psalm 119, the longest chapter of the Bible. And the uh, chief characteristic of this, of this precious psalm is, is, is essentially a love letter to God's law. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day and night. And, and only a person who understands the redeeming grace of God can express such love and affection for the law to have a right relationship with the law as, as the law having exposed and broken him in sin, only to lead him to the gracious redemption that God offers to sinners. So law, the law in this manner does give life. As we learn to mold our desires and behaviors in line with God's design and his will for us to flourish. And yes, the law does help us to honor God's name, to grow in his likeness, to humble ourselves before the cross of Christ and prepares us for heaven as we look forward to that glorious age when we will be free from sin and live for God's glory forever. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your precious law. We thank you for its statutes, for its guidance, and we thank you for the hope that we have in it as we look to Christ as our Savior, as our law keeper, and the one who enables us to grow more and more uh, in your likeness uh, through obedience to your word. We commit this time to you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.